Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by executive editor, Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And art market editor, Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. Hello to both of you. You're actually both joining us from Basel, where the 48th edition of Art Basel in Basel just kicked off on Tuesday with the VVIP preview. Anna, I'm wondering what your early impressions of the art fair are. How were sales on these opening days? Um, definitely very, very strong. We've heard from several dealers that this might be their best art Basel ever. And if you ask them whether that means we're um, heading towards a bubble or you know at the top of a bubble or something like that, a lot of them say it doesn't feel that way to them. It feels more sustainable. Um, but there's definitely a lot of works selling for upwards of a million, um, several for 10 million and higher. And I've covered, I guess, half a dozen art fairs since I started in January. And I've definitely never seen so many. I've never had to write the word million as many times as I have in the past 48 hours. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think this is my sixth Basel, I think. And other than maybe 2014, um, I'd really seen nothing like Tuesday. You know, a Basquiat sold for Machiavella for between 15 and $20 million. A Philip Guston painting sold uh, from Hauser & Wirth for around $15 million. They also sold a Piero Manzoni for $10 million, or actually upwards of 10 I think they said. And those were just kind of some of the initial highlights. There were, there were many more kind of in that range, as Anna was saying. Um, you know, I think in 2014, there was a, a Warhol that had sold for $32 million on opening day. And obviously, there's some activity that doesn't get reported publicly, but it it was really almost, you know, to, to the point where people were genuinely surprised at how good sales were on opening day, even, you know, the, the Art Basel staff for some to some extent. Yeah. And Anna, what have you been hearing from those on the ground about the reasons for this kind of surprising flurry of activity? Um, I mean, there are a lot of standard but kind of broad stroke reasons like Europe's economies are recovering. It's not um, maybe painful austerity everywhere. Some some of the major economies seem on stronger footing. Um, and then, you know, as far as with wealthy people, those are obviously who is collecting art. You know, they've been doing really well since 2008. And there was a banker from UBS who was talking to, he said, you know, normal recoveries typically last around seven years. And we've been in a recovery for nine years. So we may be at the top of it, you know, as in people are wealthier now than um, they have been uh, in, since, since the recovery began. So they may just be finally feeling comfortable after, um, you know, 10 years, nearly 10 years of stability and their wealth continuing to expand. You know, we know from economic research, a lot of um, income gains have gone to people the very top of the income bracket. Um, And those are the people who uh, collect art. And that's, you know, been happening in multiple different regions. Uh, It's not just the U.S., although the research I'm thinking of comes from the U.S. It's, you know, it's in Europe, um, in Asia, obviously, there's a growing base of collectors, and they're all here. I mean, that's also the thing that you hear from dealers is um, this isn't a regional fair. This is the fair with the biggest collectors in the world and all of the curators and people save their best work for this fair um, and they charge a lot for it and you know if things line up they sell it 
but I'm kind of curious because obviously Art Basel and Basel isn't the only art fair and we've come out of freeze. People were sort of not dour necessarily, but it, it, it definitely things weren't selling like hotcakes there. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what makes Art Basel and Basel special? Why would it see these kind of stellar sales and not other fairs on the calendar? I mean, it's a concentration of activity, right? I think Basel of any of the fairs is has has the least around it even though there's so much wealth here there aren't the parties and other kind of more pop cultural activities that happen in miami there's um you know it's a it's a very well developed market in the heart of that developed market and you know also happens to be where people keep a lot of their money um and a lot of their their works in in free ports as well so that doesn't hurt um but you know, it has always, or not always, but but for quite some time now, been um, the strongest moment on the on the calendar. That's nothing new. Um, but I think also what I noticed walking around, talking to people at Basel, but also at Lista, uh, which is the fair for younger galleries, is you know people needed a a, a sure thing this year after um, some some kind of shakier activity at other periods in time, whether that was freeze, which kind of was stuck between. Uh, Venice and a few other things uh, going on and, and sales weren't very strong there or or other fairs throughout the year not performing so well um, because Basel tends to be such a sure thing um, they they would have saved even more of their top quality works than they otherwise might have uh, they might have otherwise spread them around to other market events but this year really the focus was all on this one opportunity um, and, and it seems to have paid off well, one thing that also has made our Basel and Basel special is that it comes after uh, Documenta's opening in Kassel and, and the Venice uh, Biennale. I'm just wondering if this year was the effect of those two uh, marquee art world events felt uh, in Basel or or has it been more muted? Yeah, special, I think, is, is one way to put it. Exhausting is, is another word uh, that you might use. Uh, but nonetheless, the coming off of Kassel, there was definitely less activity related to that than there was five years ago. In part, you're seeing that because Kassel uh, or Documenta has many fewer um, artists with significant markets than uh, than the last iteration had. Uh, it was much more focused on artists that, that you don't see um, on the market itself, even though Adam Shimczyk said that he would have liked to see more. Uh, it, it has some influence on the market. We'll see if that takes place over time. You know, you do see a good amount of crossover with the Venice Biennale that's now a little over a month out um, from Venice. But, you know, one thing that I was surprised by was the extent to, you know, the last couple Biennales that have then, uh, you know, there's been this phrase of see it in Venice, buy it in Basel um, for a long time now. And, you know, that, that certainly I'm sure was still taking place, but it does feel like the art world and the art market itself has matured to a different level in which, you know, these events are very important, but they're not swaying all of the activity in one way or another. Uh, you know, dealers have figured out how to, to almost like, you know, merchandise, to use what's probably a, a dirty word in the art world, um, their booths really well, and people have developed a much more kind of broad spectrum of taste uh, that's among a much more global set of collectors. And so while while those things certainly add probably a little bit of a boost, you know, people were buying across categories, people who have had recent shows across people who, who haven't been, been in these major biennials. And I think it's more about, you know, when somebody is willing and ready to, to pull the trigger on um, 
a significant acquisition uh, and less about, you know, that kind of more uh, maybe frothy or, or opportunistic acquisition strategy that, that is directly tied to a major exhibition. Yeah, I mean, beyond uh, Castle and Venice, I mean, Art Basel and Basel is also coming after the New York auctions uh, when Yusaku Mezawa bought a Jean-Michel Basquiat for $10.5 million, shattering the records. I'm just kind of curious, were the Basquiat's out on full view in Basel trying to take advantage of a bump or were they kind of uh, everything was sort of business as usual? There were definitely some Basquiat's out. I think Artnet had a roundup of all the Basquiat's at Art Basel. I can't remember how many there were, but there was one that was uh, priced around $32 million, if I'm not mistaken, at Levy Gorby. Um, but that was something that they had... Uh, they had secured that consignment before the auction um, took place, I was told. So that was something he'd gotten from Peter Brandt, um, Mr. Gorby, and something that they had been talking about, I think, you know, over a long period of time that wasn't necessarily precipitated by the auction result. Um, and as as of yesterday, it hadn't sold, but all, that all could have changed um, to, by today. Yeah, I think that major basket sold from Aquavella, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if if the kind of even more significant one from Levy Gorby does end up selling by the end of the fair. But they also illustrate, and um, actually Mark Peo, who's um, a partner at Hauser & Wirth, and um, was talking to him about the sale of the Gustin, um, for example, and, you know, he was mentioning that this is really kind of a, a, a hallmark of galleries and dealers, uh, such as theirs really coming to, to be at the same level of competition, uh, with houses like, uh, Sotheby's and Christie's for these major works. Um, it's something that, um, as, as Anna's reported on over the past year, we've seen even more of that top end of the market move into the private dealing private sales uh sector and the dealer sector of the of the art market um as people both want to have um slightly greater discretion when selling major things more control um you know you saw in the auctions last month um you know some major things getting pulled right at the last minute and I think that you know while while I guess at least at Art Basel it looks like the market is uh, rallying and certain certain results uh, like the Basquiat and last last month's auctions do seem to indicate that as well. You know, there there is still quite a bit of uncertainty in the market and in the world at large. Um, so that that more mediated environment that dealers can provide in terms of a sales environment can be very attractive to to sellers right now, in comparison to the kind of you know potential greater gains that one might have at a very successful auction, like, you know, when Yuzaka Mitawa bids up a Basquiat almost twice its its estimate. But, uh, but you know, that I think people aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily have that risk appetite at the moment. And, you know, on the lower end of the market, it, my my understanding was, um, talking to a few emerging galleries, that the, the, the general enthusiasm, um, some kind of seriousness of the collectors. They felt like they were getting a pretty strong critical reception. There was a fair amount of um, institutional buying, which kind of surprised me because I, I always assume that institutions are, are resource wrapped. And obviously in the U.S., you know, we're 
there's a lot of fear about um, institutions losing public funding. But uh, several dealers said to me, you know, there were um, institutions there with who who felt like they could purchase with the support of um, private patrons. So, you know, some of that wealth that we'd been discussing earlier is also being channeled um, to to public institutions um, in support of the art market. You know, and that that may not necessarily be the super expensive things, but maybe more emerging artists, um, you know, maybe undervalued artists, like older female artists, you know, who are, um, people are thinking we need to fill in these parts of our collection. So you're seeing um, sales like that going uh, kind of across the board. Alex, how do you see the relationship between the sales in Basel and the relative stability there compared to the United States right now? You know, I think it's hard to say for sure. Um, you, I, or at least I, walking around on Tuesday, I definitely didn't hear that much kind of great enthusiasm about Mer- American collectors. That's not to say that they weren't there and buying or buying from buying from afar, um, but it certainly does seem that at that very top end of the market, um, a big portion of that activity is coming from the Chinese. I also heard there were some very a small handful, but of very serious handful of Japanese collectors on hand as well. So that portion of the market that's obviously also been um, fostered fairly well by Art Basel in Hong Kong is the is the dominant or at least the the splashiest end, the, the stuff that people are probably going to end up writing about the most. Um, to what extent, you know, what percentage of sales in the middle was made up by Americans versus Europeans versus uh, Asian collectors, you know, I think that that would be the, the the big question. But you know, you do get the sense here that you know, despite how I think many people are feeling in the U.S. about you know lingering uncertainty and uh, a little bit of doom and glooms, you know, in the picture, the mood here was very positive, and people I think there's a sense among Europeans that um, the the kind of rising populism that we were seeing over the past 12 to 18 months. Um, has been curbed and and that things are kind of heading back in the right direction and that, as Anna was saying before, the economy is moving um, in a slightly better direction. So you you combine that with also what um, UBS, uh, their head of private wealth was saying, you know, kind of the central bank interventions making money uh, be worth less and then people, people are buying more art. And another thing I think may have contributed to um, sales and part of kind of the flip side of this overall enthusiastic, you know, high energy kind of joyous tone of the fair was um, several people who um, show more politically and socially engaged work. Um, I'm thinking of Goodman Gallery or um, Jenkins Johnson in San Francisco, uh, Goodman Gallery in South Africa, a Greek gallery, um, Kalfayan, uh, and Jack Shaman's gallery. Um, you know, a lot of them said their work that dealt with whether it's issues of um, human rights, civil rights, refugees, um, you know, ra- racial inequality and discrimination. Those kind of works they felt had a particular salience and appeal, and that was reflected in in sales for them. So kind of turning away from the market, obviously there's a lot of great art, a lot of great booths there in Basel. We have a roundup of them on our website. If you haven't checked it out already, it's by Molly Gottschalk. Highly recommend it. The 20 best booths at our Basel in Basel. But since I have you, Anna and Alex on the line, I'm wondering what are your highlights? Uh, were there a couple real standouts this year? 
Um, I got to see some more work. I had just seen the Carol Rama show at the New Museum in New York, and there's definitely a lot of her work here at the fair. So it's nice to see some new pieces that, I mean, they're not new. They were all made decades ago, but um, it was nice to see more of her work in a new context. And there was one uh, booth that had her alongside a Japanese artist who was working at the same time. They didn't appear to know each other, influence each other uh, directly, but they worked with similar palettes, similar themes. And I thought that was a really nice um, juxtaposition. Alex? So one of my favorite works in the fair itself um, is at Esther Shipper's booth, uh, which looks deceptively small this year. There's a wall that um, kind of cuts it diagonally. And if you find the door and go inside this wall, there's a work by Tino Segal um, that was debuted at the Palais de Tokyo uh, last fall, I believe, during, during his exhibition there. It's uh, called Anne Lee and Marcel, and it, there are two children in the booth at any one time. I think there's three, three pairs of children, so they're not you know, working constantly. But it started out with this character that Pierre Hugue and uh, Philippe Pereno, they had purchased this manga character named Anne Lee, and then uh, there's a number of works between the two of them and that Tino has also collaborated with um, that use Anne Lee, and then Marcel uh, is Tino's own uh, creation. And I don't know, it's, it, it's about, I think about 10 minutes long, the performance, and it's just so rare that you get to, to stand in an enclosed space in, a, in an art fair, in the middle of the art fair, and see something that's just moving and phenomenal. Um, so I highly recommend it for anybody who's here, find that door. Um, over an unlimited, which is a size, a, a section of the fair kind of meant for institutional scale presentations, you know, the likes of which you would see more typically at a biennial um, or at a museum show. A couple of my highlights were um, Sue Williamson's work, uh, Messages from the Atlantic Passage, um, which has these kind of fishing nets filled with glass bottles that are suspended from the ceiling that drape then into these pools of water, each of which there's a name of certain slave ships. Um, and the number of people that started out in Africa and made it to America. Um, it's very, again, just very moving work um, and really, really phenomenal to see something like that at a fair. Um, also, on the, on the much, much lighter side, uh, if for, for those people that are, are more deeply entrenched in the art world, um, Rob Pruitt has this hilarious... Uh, Rob Pruitt's official art world celebrity lookalikes uh, work in Unlimited, where he pairs up uh, people in the art world with uh, their celebrity doppelgangers. So you have uh, Cecilia Alemani uh, looking somewhat like maybe from Arrested Development, uh, and you know a number of, of other great ones. But uh, it's a it's a funny one to kind of walk around in. I don't know if it's like. You know, definitely not the most intellectual work that you'll see at the fair, but uh, very entertaining. Are you on there, Alex? Do you get a doppelganger? I, no, I did not get a doppelganger. Well, may- I think I, the, I need you know a little bit more uh, notoriety before maybe, going there. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. I know you guys are both so busy, um, but quickly before we let you go, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to seeing that you haven't seen yet, or you you want to revisit before you leave Basel? 
Well, in the spirit of our uh, traditional segment, I will be actually drinking white wine um, at the Byler Foundation tomorrow night, I think, trying to see the uh, Wolfgang Tillman show that's up there. Um, Our colleague Molly went somewhat ridiculously early this morning to see it uh, and said it was was pretty phenomenal. Although I've heard mixed things from other people, but I'm excited to see it myself and, and see what I think. Alex stole mine. I really want to go to the Byler Foundation too because it's also one of the more exquisite um, buildings and most beautiful museums I've ever been to. It's kind of got glass walls and is set a little bit outside of the city and it feels very bucolic. Um, so it's an extraordinary place. And if I have time, I'd also love to go back to the Vitra campus because they have a lot of incredible architecture there and um, some fun stuff that you can go see, like a new museum of all their chairs that they've ever produced. Well, thanks again to Alex and Anna for joining us from Basel. That's all we have time for this week. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. See you next time. Our producer this week, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Brooke for free.